Sometime before 1162, a Mongol girl named Hulan was kidnapped and taken as a bride. Although the details of her story are shrouded in mystery, the tales that are told of her may illustrate many otherwise inaccessible aspects of steppe culture. Hello and welcome to Footnoting History. I'm Sam and today I'm going to tell you a little bit about a woman named Holun living in the Mongolian steppe in the latter half of the 12th century. Most of my account is derived from the secret history of the Mongols, and I must admit that the details are suspect. This account was written with the aim of glorifying Holun's family, and therefore had much to gain by embellishing her story. Regardless of whether or not the specifics of this account are true, however, we know that they were believable within the cultural context in which she lived, and some of the details may reveal a whole lot about that society. Our story begins when a young warrior named Chiledu of the Merkid tribe set off to find a wife. He traveled to a place famous for the beauty of its women, as one does when looking for a wife. As was the tradition, he brought gifts for his prospective bride's father, and he worked for the father for a number of years. This practice remunerated the family for the loss of their daughter while simultaneously forging a bond between the families and allowing the brides to get to know their grooms before marriage. Often, the prospective brides were slightly older than the men sent to woo them. They were therefore responsible for initiating a physical relationship when they thought it was best. Once Holan and Chiladu were married, they set off towards his home, a journey that would take several weeks. The bride rode in a cart pulled by a yak or ox. It was possibly also carrying the traditional gift for her husband's father. Her husband accompanied her on horseback. As the couple traveled along the Anan River, they were spotted by Yasugai, a solitary hunter who decided that Holan was a greater prize than anything his falcon could catch. This hunter, you see, was too poor to afford the presence he would need to marry a woman like Holun. In order to marry, therefore, he would have to resort to kidnapping a bride. This tactic was common among the nomadic tribes. After spotting the couple, Yusugai made his way silently back to camp where he recruited his two brothers to help him obtain a new wife. As the three approached the couple, Chiledu galloped off, drawing the hunters after him. Then he tried to circle back to his bride, but according to the chronicler, Holun knew that the hunters had not been fooled. If her husband was to live, he must flee, and she must stay and surrender her to her captives, for they would never make an escape with two on a single horse. She also knew that she was a valuable asset and would be kept alive, as a warrior, Chiledu would not. According to the secret history, Holun advised her lover to flee, and to kidnap another wife to replace her. But, because she had real affection for him, she disrobed and threw her sweaty shirt at him, saying, Take this with you, so that you may have the smell of me as you go. This gesture was a significant one. Within step culture, smell held a lot of meaning. It was believed that a person's aroma constituted a part of that person's soul. Therefore, by giving her scent to her husband, Hulan offered him a part of her soul as a permanent reminder of her love, though the two would never meet again. Hulan's capture meant a significant loss in status. From this point forward, she was hardly more than a chattel. 
The clan to which her new husband belonged was an insignificant one, unlike her natal family, or indeed that of her first husband. And this new clan were hunters rather than herders, which meant that food was more scarce. Moreover, Hulun was Yasugai's second wife. Because his first wife was still alive and already had a son, it was unlikely that her children would ever be head of the family, let alone anything more prestigious. They lived in a society based on kinship, where birth and birth order were extremely important. Hulun would have to struggle for status against a competing woman. Over the next decade, Hulun bore four sons and a daughter. Then Yasugai was poisoned by a rival clan and died. At this juncture, one of his brothers might have married his wives, but for whatever reason they did not, though they were still alive because they feature in her son's story later. Hisugai's oldest son by his first wife might have married Holun, had he been old enough to care for the family, but he was not. Though it was common for men to marry widows, and Holun was still a young woman, probably still in her twenties, she had too many children for most men to support, and as I have already noted, Yasugai's clan was not a wealthy one. Therefore, the clan decided that it had little use for Yasugai's two widows and seven young children. The Mongols used food to symbolize relationships. So when Hulun found herself uninvited to the annual meal to honor the family's ancestors, she knew that she had been cut off from the clan. Her family would have no one to protect them and feed them as the clan moved off downriver. According to the secret history, Hulun made one last heroic attempt to shame the clan into sheltering her family. As they prepared to go, she grabbed the spirit banner which her husband had carried in his life, and which the Mongols believed became a receptacle for a soul once the body died. She mounted her horse and rode after them, waving the banner over her head. Indeed, they did feel such shame in the presence of his soul that they returned to camp. But then, when night fell, they snuck away, taking all of their animals with them, and theoretically condemning the family to death. Somehow, the family struggled on. Holun searched for food, feeding her children fruits, juniper, and other bounty from the river banks. She taught her sons to make arrows and fish hooks, and although they probably spent years eating the flesh of rats and wearing their hides, they survived. Through all of this, the two women kept their family together. Had their husband survived, his family would have been expected to offer him their unquestioning obedience. However, in his absence, it was his oldest son who would become patriarch for the family. For Holun, this meant offering obedience to another woman's son. According to the secret history, Holun was content with this arrangement. It is even likely that she expected to become her husband's son's first wife. Her oldest son, Temujin, however, was not content to obey his half-brother, and along with one of his full brothers, he murdered his father's oldest child. When Holun discovered what her son had done, she admonished him and worried about what his action would do to their family. Killing Kin was a taboo act and put the family in jeopardy. They immediately fled the area, but even so, the clan, who had previously demonstrated very little concern, for the murdered young man's life, sent a party of warriors to punish Temujin, who was captured and enslaved for an unknown period of time before returning to his family. In time, Hulun would find herself matriarch to Temujin's small clan. It was then, after 18 years, that her first husband's clan came to revenge the abduction of Hulun. 
After all this time, they had no interest in reclaiming the stolen bride. Instead, they sought to steal a new bride, in this case, Temujin's young wife, Borta. This act reveals another common aspect about life among the nomadic clans. They were always raiding each other, and every raid provided the pretext for a counter-raid, which could take place many years later after the avenging tribe felt strong enough. In this case, the attack came in the dead of night as the family slept. An old woman who was living with them at the time was woken by the vibration of hoofs on the ground. She shouted in alarm, and all of the men, along with Holun and her daughter, were able to escape. Borta, the old woman, and the other widow were left behind. Given its source, this tale is not intended to be a slanderous one. Indeed, when raids took place, it was common for men to make their escape and to leave behind women and old people as booty. The raiders would be slowed down as they stopped to collect their bounty, which gave the men more time to escape. It was expected that the people and goods left behind would survive. Young women, indeed, might be taken as wives and live a full life. Captured warriors, on the other hand, would be killed. After his escape, Temujin sought support from another clan and conducted a counter-raid which began his journey to greatness. But we're not here to talk about Temujin. We're here to talk about Holun. Unfortunately, after this, the story tells a lot less about her. We know that her son continued to seek her advice throughout the remainder of his life. He also used her to help create fictive kinships. As he expanded his power, he would have his mother adopt a boy from each of the peoples he subdued, thereby symbolically transforming them into his younger brothers. They would owe him obedience henceforth, but they would have more respect than a slave. As Helen's firstborn grew older, he also grew more powerful, eventually adopting the name Genghis Khan, by which he is known today. As the great ruler endeavored to transform his society through the formation of a new army and a new law, one of his primary goals was to create a cohesive community. In order to do this, he had to prevent the types of behaviors that had divided the clans. One of the measures he adopted was outlawing the kidnapping of brides. In this, he was likely inspired by the kidnapping of his own mother and by the raid performed in retribution for that act, which resulted in the kidnapping of his own bride, whom he actually did get back, by the way. Moreover, Genghis Khan's new army was based, at least in theory, on ability rather than purely kinship, and yet he left his mother in charge of 5,000 men. Even as her son became arguably one of the most powerful men ever to live, the secret history suggests that Holan never shied away from confronting him when he was in the wrong. One of the last stories we hear about her took place shortly before her death. Genghis Khan had been tricked into imprisoning his youngest brother. Hearing of this, Holan rode for a day to get to her son's court. She stormed into his gear and released her youngest son, then showing her oldest son her withered breast, she demanded that he free his brother, which, according to the chronicler, he did. Again, whether or not this event actually took place, we get the point loud and clear. Don't mess with Holon when she's angry. Our heroine died a short time later, probably in her 50s. She was the mother and grandmother of emperors. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. 
You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. <laughs>